another episode of Strategic Dialogues. If you're a first-time listener, welcome aboard. This is a platform where we take a deep dive into pertinent issues of foreign policy, international relations, and geopolitics with an African perspective. Defense diplomacy is a key tool of statecraft that embodies a combination of hard and soft power tools in furthering a state's foreign policy agenda. In spite of this inherent value, defense diplomacy has remained a relatively understudied concept, primarily due to conceptual ambiguities and imprecisions that have often undermined analytical depth and comprehensive studies of its contours in practice. Today's episode will focus on defense diplomacy, unraveling its meanings, its positioning in relation to other tools of statecrafts, and even more specifically, we will also be examining South Africa's defense diplomacy in service of delivering strategic imperatives and foreign and security policy objectives. My guest today is Darren Olivier, Director at the African Defense Review, a conflict research consultancy and an expert in military affairs who has been writing on defense issues and the South African National Defense Force in particular for over a decade. Darren, it's good to have you. I couldn't think of somebody more appropriate to have this conversation with. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. So I think let's get right on it. And a good starting point for me would be to understand what this so-called that I'm talking about defense diplomacy is, because you often hear that there's defense diplomacy and you hear also military diplomacy. Are these two concepts interchangeable or are there certain nuances that we think you think we should be aware of? Sure. So I believe they're definitely different. Although, as you mentioned in your intro, it remains a, a highly contested uh, definition, one in which there, there, there is not yet uh, global agreement on, on exactly what it means and what it what encompasses. Uh, generally speaking, the idea is that uh, unlike military diplomacy, which is quite narrow in scope and tends to refer only to the use of the armed forces as part of diplomacy, defense diplomacy is far broader and involves the use of the armed forces as part of it, along with the Ministry of Defense, Defense Industry, Defense-related Industries, Defense-related People, NGOs, Civil Society, uh, really the entire um, range of, of any um, uh, individual and organization that, that is even peripherally involved in defense. And again, uh, that's you know the scope of, of the, 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 the one side. Um, the scope also changes with regards to how it is, is used and the purpose of it. So military diplomacy has traditionally been seen as uh, fairly coercive, uh, not always the case, but uh, that really has been the way it was used the majority of the time, at least during the Cold War. Uh, the idea behind defense diplomacy is that it's meant for a more cooperative uh, global um, uh, you know, agenda, really. And, and, and the idea that uh, uh, there are ways to achieve the, the win-win style of diplomacy uh, without having to resort to coercive uh, measures using the defense industry. Sorry, using uh, defense forces. So one example, for instance, would be cooperation between defense industries. Uh, this is an area where, um, in theory at least, uh, you don't have to then have a coercive approach because both sides benefit from the cooperation and the, um, uh, the, the boost to research and production that they receive. And also, uh, very importantly, it can be used as a trust-building approach. So, uh, I mean, really some of the key factors of defense diplomacy, aside from the defense industry angle, are the use of uh, military or defense attaches, 
who act as sort of semi-diplomats in, in a sense. Um, the use of um, training exchanges, so that, that refers to both uh, joint exercises and the um, sending of individuals to um, other countries' armed forces as a way to um, well, expose them to other countries' processes, but also as a way to build those links and relations between the two different armed forces. Um, and of course, on the, on the ministry side, uh, the, the defense ministry can be seen in a much broader sense than just looking after the, the, the defense force or, or the, the armed forces in general, and can be seen really as, as one of the arms of diplomacy. Um, recognizing that, again, diplomacy is, is a very broad concept. It's not something that should be left only to you know, your foreign affairs department and your diplomats. Obviously, they, 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 they are the lead agency. But um, in an age where, you know, the internet exists and uh, we have 24-hour media and uh, we interact on so many different levels than before, you really can't uh, limit diplomacy to only one uh, agency or, or, or area or site. Uh, so it's a really recognition that diplomacy is broad. Uh, it has multi-factors, multi-dimensions. Um, uh, and... You, you really need to have a coordinated approach across all your agencies and, and departments, and especially between, I'd say, your foreign affairs department and the, and the Department of Defense, because those tend to be uh, the main instruments of state diplomacy and power. I agree with you, and, and thank you for taking the conversation there, because we were, we were ultimately going to come back to the whole idea of the interface between the Department of Defense, and in our case, the Department of International Relations and Cooperation. And like you were saying, defense diplomacy comprises a whole range of activities. You talked about the defense attaches, you talked about joint uh, multilateral training, bilateral and multilateral training exercises, um, contacts between military personnel, assistance in um, humanitarian and disaster relief missions, etc. And I think it's important. It's also important to mention some of the differences or some of the definitions that have come across. Actually, point to very subtle differences between yes, military diplomacy and defense diplomacy can be used interchangeably, but at least in some cases, when um, people refer to military diplomacy, they usually just um, mean primarily the uniformed components of the the nation's defense establishment. So activities that are performed by, by the, the strictly uniformed components, but whereas defense is a more umbrella term, defense diplomacy is a more umbrella term that, like you're saying, includes the defense ministry, the defense industry, and uh, national training institutions, for instance, like the defense colleges. So I, th I thought that was important just to bring about in understanding some of the the, the discussions or the conceptual uh, discourse around this, but in some cases it can be used interchangeably. It's also interesting to note that defense diplomacy, while, while we are in agreement that it's relatively understudied, it actually has a very long history. And this can go back to the, in Europe, for instance, it goes back to the 18th century, uh, when we see the posting of defense attaches under Napoleon, we see we see this emergent role of soldier diplomats, um, where we see defense attaches performing this very hybrid role of being uh, part diplomat, for instance, or part scout. And even in Africa, I don't want to forget the issue of Africa, lest, be lest I be accused of being um, just focusing on the Western dimension or the Eurocentric dimension. Africa also has a long history. It's not a foreign concept to us because we have examples of diplomatic activities, including the exercise of defense diplomacy, going back to 
the peace treaties of the 1734 instance and 1748 between the Oyo and Dahomey kingdoms in Western Africa, the alliances established by the Fante against the Ashanti in the 18th century, the 1830 Treaty of Jarapanga between the Ashanti and the Dagomba, and even the anti-Badan alliance that we, we saw um, circling around the history of the 19th century. So it's interesting, and if you bring it to modern times, like, like in the era of the Cold War, we see programs like NATO's Partnership for Peace, which was intended to help instill democratic norms of civil-military relations to integrate Eastern European countries into the collective security framework of, um, of the European Union and NATO. So these are just some of the examples that I thought it would be important to highlight in helping um, our listeners to contextualize and, and, and almost have a um, visual history of what you're talking about and understanding uh, defense diplomacy as, as um, a concept that has traveled through time. I think I also want to, to bring in the issue of military exercises, which I found very interesting because particularly in this era of geopolitical competition or the resurgence of geopolitical competition as we've seen in, in recent years, military exercises also are interesting for me because they present this vehicle of, of geopolitical messaging or saber rattling, if you want to call it that. And some examples that come to me, for instance, this year alone, when you look at the China-Russia um, Zapad interaction, which um, brought in a new era of um, China, Chinese-Russian bilateral relations and sort of put, put it out there, the vision for, for regional security and stability. We also look at the joint exercises between Russia and Belarus, uh, and and, and in, in that case, it's also interesting because they decided to establish a joint air defense and air force training combat center. It's interesting in 2021 because of the scale of the Russian-Belarusian um, joint military exercise in, involving, I think it was something like 200,000 um, troops. Some some will say that figure is, is inflated, but that's what I came across. And just the kind of um, machinery and, and training that they were they were going to do. It was an unprecedented um, exercise. And we can go on and on about this. For instance, um, the planned Iran-Russia-China exercises, I think it's towards the end of this year in the Persian Gulf. So um, I'd, I'd begin to hear your, your views on that. Yes, military exercises have been a long part of the defense diplomacy toolkit, but there's also that role, like I'm saying, of geopolitical messaging. Um, do you agree with that? Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, what you mentioned earlier about the long history of defensive diplomacy, I think, was really apt, and it applies here too. You know, um, in a way, everything that that was old is new again. Where uh, exercises are not only used, as you said, for you know joint training and, and diplomacy, but they're also an approach to providing messaging and signaling. Uh, and this again goes back through you know decades and decades uh, as a way to for countries to not only demonstrate their capabilities uh, in, in the coercive sense and, 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 and the, the deterrent sense, but also a way to demonstrate uh, how well they work with their chosen allies, which itself carries some level of deterrent capability, or, sorry, deterrent value. Um, for example, in size like Zapad between Russia and China, uh, this is you know, really displaying uh, to well, the US and, and, and to the EU and to the rest of NATO that uh, those countries are able to interoperate at a fairly high level, uh, at a large scale, and uh, therefore that you know um, their their 
diplomatic links are more than just those, you know, how to describe it, they're more than just a friendliness at a diplomatic level. They're extended to cooperation at a deeper level, which allows them to interoperate at mass scale uh, in highly complex, complex exercises across, you know, a, a very large geographic area. And there again, you know, uh, with Belarus and, and, and Russia, that's the part, of the, the part of the purpose of that signaling is to provide Belarus with assurance that Russia uh, will come to its aid in the event of any kind of you know, overt military action. So on the one hand, the, the signaling is towards Belarus's government, but of course there's also signaling externally to say, well, uh, you know, um, we're able to interoperate, we work together quite, quite closely. And of course, as Russia, because we've not done this, we are able to come to Belarus's uh, defense, uh, you know, quite easily and w- without any any real uh, concerns, obstacles, blockers, and all the rest. So absolutely, exercises have multiple, multiple roles. And, but you, you do tend to see this more often with the larger ones. Uh, you know, exercises can go massively in scale from really, you know, a few dozen troops um, all the way up to, again, you know, these, these you know, many hundred thousand troop major exercises that take years to plan. Um, and it tends to be the case that the largest ones are mostly for signaling and to test, uh, well, to test, well, to test and demonstrate being able to mobilize at scale, which obviously has its own value. But uh, I think those tend to primarily be about a, a formal diplomacy. But in this case, it is very much coercive and very much based on the idea of deterrence and um, and showing strength. Um, but of course, it, it, it varies completely and, and goes up and down the chains. I mean, some, some military exercises are purely as a way to build capacity. So the country... Uh, the countries may not be very matched in terms of capabilities, so the one the one partner is always going to learn more than the other, and you often see this, for example, with um, I mean, as an example, the the U.S. helping to train um, and provide exercises for Mozambican uh, military personnel, um, where the prime purpose of that, obviously, aside from the U.S. forces gathering their own intelligence on what's happening, is to really build capacity in the in, in, in the Mozambican armed forces. Um, there's not much that the U.S. Um, soldiers that are engaged in that are going to, to really gain from that engagement right now beyond the intelligence value. That being said, of course, it would be incorrect to believe that every time a uh, more powerful country uh, or a military engages in an exercise with, with a, a less powerful one, that it has nothing to learn or gain. Uh, there are always local skills, local abilities, and local um, outlooks that have value and are things that often aren't considered by the more wealthy and powerful merchants. So I agree, it's a highly complicated area with so many different angles to it, which is also why it can't be something that is done ad hoc. Uh, it really should be done something that, that not only involves, again, the armed forces organizing it, but the involvement of, for example, it's Africa Jerko, uh, to, to get the not only the, the, the most benefit from the, the diplomacy angle of it, but also to ensure that the um, whatever signaling is being sent out is in line with the country's foreign policy ambitions. Yes, and and it's interesting when you were talking about um, when you look at some of the benefits and and that very close nexus between the military and diplomatic tools of of foreign policy. It's it also bring, brings in a very important dimension of soft power. So we see defense diplomacy giving us this this means or this avenue of um, putting to use the military as a source of soft power, um, like you're saying, through direct means like 
military to military training exercises um educational exchanges defense attaches etc so one gets the sense then that there is a pragmatic element and here i'm, I'm talking um in the sense of the soft power dimension there's a pragmatic ele- um element of um using defense diplomacy to maintain or to foster the cooperations so to to maintain for instance the the, the relations between two countries or more within a region while the more transformative element of defense diplomacy will look to substantively alter um existing conditions and i would argue that in the south african setting as we've seen historically it it, it one can argue that in the post 1994 transition it embraced a transformative uh, form of defense diplomacy and over the years it sort of um, moved into a more pragmatic um, aspect of defense diplomacy so maybe we can um, segue into into the discussion now on on and focus more particularly on south africa's defense uh, diplomacy so talk talk to us a little bit about that transition and what was so important about the post 1994 reemergence of the south african military as a key component of of its foreign policy yes yeah, so I, i i fully agree with you um i think it's a really important point you raised there about the shift over time from a more transformational approach to a more pragmatic approach where um it definitely seems that some of the ambition has been lost coming out of the gates you know post 94 the objective was to turn the to turn the book or well, turn the page on the uh previous era's use of the military which is inherently coercive inherently um you know oppositional it, it was the use of the military in cross border raids uh with no consideration for sovereignty or, or diplomacy or any of those concepts and it was really a, a, an extremely negative approach to foreign policy uh and of course the military also just came out of the war and so it was on a wartime footing and uh, it had become used to as well being the primary agent i would say of of the previous era government's po- um, uh, power so there was a recognition that this had to change and one of that was to move towards a more cooperative constructive and soft power based approach the peacetime military that could offer not only the traditional military military to military engagements and and uh, um interactions for example exercises uh, exchange programs um you know defense industry involvement as well uh, and all the rest um and, and and direct training but also you know the sense of lessons learned um being able to offer up some of the advice given on demobilization on the integration of of former enemies into a single force um and on the move from being such a you know a a, a aggressive wartime force to being a, a peacetime force with a vastly different mandate so um that was definitely i think the intention and slowly since it was achieved but i don't believe it got as far as it could have so my concern there is that well there were a lot of plans and proposals and policies put in place for how uh, Durko and uh, the, the DAD would interact and coordinate um for example you know the uh, the office of the national office for coordinating peace missions was created and various other instruments were created in both the DAD and uh, Durko or the Department of Foreign Affairs to coordinate uh, the response to um well peace missions defense diplomacy in general military engagements and all the rest. Uh this started well, but I do feel that it has lost the momentum significantly over time. 
Uh, Doko has become more focused specifically on uh, you know, AU and UN protocols and uh, policies, as opposed to having a, an operational and, and day-to-day uh, coordination role with the DOD. Um, and there's also the risk that uh, certain interactions and certain deployments don't fall within the ambit of, of that cooperation. Uh, there's still an open question, for example, as to what extent uh, Durko and the, the DOD <coughs> interact regarding the SADC deployment to Mozambique, which has happened outside of the AU and outside of the UN, and is really a you know effectively a bilateral engagement between the SADC and and the, the, the government of Mozambique. Uh, so again, you have this this issue where um, the intent is there, but the execution has not really followed through. And I believe because of that, there's been a, a number of lost opportunities, a number of missteps. One of which was the you know, the disaster in Bangui, where um, South African troops were sent there for exceptionally nebulous foreign policy reasons, and the entire episode could be considered a foreign policy. Uh, you know, mistake really, where South Africa achieved nothing for its efforts and for the lives lost, um, did not achieve any uh, economic or diplomatic benefits from it, and, and effectively walked away, um, you know, at, at severe cost in human lives and 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 you know, cost in terms of, of uh, expenditure of of, of money uh, for no value. And we increasingly seen like the kind of approach where there's this disconnect between the two. Another example is there was a an army training mission uh, of the DRC military uh, mission Tebe, which, as far as can be can be ascertained, did not really have much interaction not only within the higher defense uh, you know uh, uh, hierarchy, but also with Durko itself. So here you have a case again where you know, one part of the DOD is effectively running its own foreign policy, uh, which. Again, you do want to have some level of independence, but you do want to have coordination. So I fully agree that that's a, it needs to be re-examined, in my view, with, with a fresh set of eyes and a fresh approach to understanding what is it that we actually want to achieve in terms of defense diplomacy as South Africa. And that has to include then uh, a much better foreign policy linkage to, to the use of the DOD. Interesting that you 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 say that, Darren, because that that was going to be my next question. The and and like you've mentioned, this disconnect that we've seen in practice between the the Foreign Affairs Ministry, Draco in this case, and in the Department of Defense, and it begs the question of whether the main reference documents pertinent to South African defense diplomacy, and here I mean we know it's the the white paper. Um, on foreign policy, the the Defense Review, 2015 Defense Review, the 1994 White Paper on Intelligence, etc. It's for me. It's the question of whether these core reference documents are they relevant? Do they do they um, are they able to deliver or present the the much needed guidance at the strategic level, as you alluded to? But even more interestingly, when we look at South Africa's foreign policy priorities at, at the center of which is this idea of promoting the, the African agenda as a key theme, do you think that this is reflected in the, in the practice of defense diplomacy? But even then, um, 
and here we can go into the, the main criticisms of the 2015 defense review, which um, is arguably the main defense policy document that, that, has, that informs South Africa's defense trajectory over a 15-year time frame. So talk to us a little bit about those core reference documents, whether you think the, the, the disconnect also comes from the idea of a very disjointed um, approach at the strategic level, which presents at the, at the operational and tactical levels, and by implication, also a disconnect in terms of policy coherence across the different departments. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you look at the, uh, the Defense Review of 2015, which, uh, I mean, it was really the Defense Review of 2012, but then delayed for various reasons. Um, one of the key things that, that, it, that it, it mentions and, and, and really highlights as, as, as a severe obstacle to, to developing the review is the lack of a coherent national foreign policy and national um, security, security strategy. Uh, so effectively, what, ha- what happened is the authors of the Defense Review have to make up their own foreign policy or assume certain areas of foreign policy, which, of course, is completely, you know, uh, doesn't make any sense. Um, not only that, of course, so there's that then leads to you know, no interaction between DERCO, uh, Treasury, the Department of, of Public Enterprises, and the DOD altogether. So a document like the, the 2015 Defense Review, while it was comprehensive and admirable and, and, and definitely had, I think, in my view, a clear-eyed view of what Africa's defense objectives were and a pretty good, I think, understanding of what its foreign policy could be or should be, that lack of, of coordination uh, has meant that effectively the, the review just uh, is dead in the water uh, because the level of funding required to make it happen was never approved, was never granted. In fact, um, the DOD budget has shrunk substantially since that review was passed uh, to the point where you know the review itself assumptions on, on how bad things were when it came out are, are no longer even valid. Things are worse now. You know, there was some improvements or some attempt to create a, a better and more coherent foreign policy. There was a white paper on foreign policy came out in 2015. Um, and it's a good paper in general, but I found it too vague. And I think it did not really factor in the role of defense diplomacy uh, uh, at all, really. Um, what we really need, in my view, is not just the white papers. We need something akin to the, UK, the UK's strategic review where it's not only a strategic review of defense, which is part of it, but also our foreign policy in general and the level of ambition to which the country uh, aspires. And the, uh, really answers the question of, well, what do we want out of defense diplomacy? What do we want out of our foreign policy? And how do we coordinate and, and, and link those, those two together while also importantly providing capacity for it? Because I think this is a, a key question that's often missed is that, uh, um, defense diplomacy requires a certain of, of, of capacity because um, if your armed forces can't do something, if they can't provide the level of training, if they can't do the exercise, if they can't um, project power, they can't perform a disaster response, they can't perform search and rescue, well then, you know, effectively your, your promises and, and gestures and all the rest are empty. And this, I think, has been a key question that, that's been missed throughout all of this is, well, how do we ensure that we have the, the, the capacity to back up our policy. And uh, uh, that's really, I think, an area that, that, that's, that's been missed, been lost. Um, I mean, to give you one example of, of where coordination has failed, uh, a really good example of defense diplomacy was the ADATA program with Brazil. 
So ADATA is an air-to-air missile developed by Danel, uh, and but it, it couldn't be completed under Danel or um, local Defence Force funding because it was too costly. So uh, a partner was sought, and this was done not only through Danel, but as a defence diplomacy angle with the involvement of senior uh, officials, uh, Durka, I believe, and the Minister of Defence, reaching out to their counterparts in Brazil to offer a partnership on this programme, uh, a cost-sharing and a way for, the, for both countries to then uh, generate or almost to reap benefits from this. It started exceptionally well. Um, Brazil was interested. It was a requirement it had. It was a good opportunity to build up part of its industrial base, which hadn't yet reached that level of, of advancement in terms of missiles. Um, and uh, it, it was also an opportunity for, for really a close engagement between the, the, the militaries of, of Brazil and South Africa, who you know have some shared interests, one of which is they both control, well, they both have a, a very large search and rescue area of responsibility act in, in the Atlantic. Uh, unfortunately, though, Danelle's problems and Danelle's cash crunch has virtually killed the program, uh, where it was supposed to be delivering missiles to the Brazilians and the South African Air Force uh, a few years ago already. It hasn't happened. Uh, to the point where Brazil is now openly talking about pulling out of the program. And it, it has severely damaged the relationships between Brazil uh, and South Africa at, at, at a very high level. Uh, but of course, when it comes to discussions around what to do about Danel, um, you know, th- there isn't even coordination between the DOD and the Department of Public Enterprises, let alone the Public Enterprises, DERCO, the DOD, and, and Brazil. So understanding, for example, the value of this program to South Africa on a much broader level than merely a question of revenue for the mill. So that, to me, is, is really a, a, a microcosm of, of the serious disconnect and, and, and non-coherence um, between the policies of each, each, each uh, department and division. Uh, and that came to the fore again with the White Paper on Foreign Policy and the Defence Review, both of which showed serious um, uh, signs of being developed entirely within one silo of a department, and not having cross-department coordination, involvement, um, feedback, or uh, you know, uh, information and advice. So it's really a case, I think, of each department is running its own its own policy and trying to almost guess what the others are doing. And this, in my view, is, is, is both not only harmful for us, but it's going to keep harming us for the next 15 to 20 years at least. Talking about the lack of clarity between... Um, what we want at an expectations level or at a goals level and and ensuring that we have the, the capacity to deliver on that. It's it's interesting for me because you touch on this decline in funding uh, in the in the defense budget. I think at the moment we're looking at levels of one percent of GDP. And we're also faced with a problem of inclination towards a very funding-driven, very budget-driven defense strategy rather than one that's um, mandate-driven and one that is um, looking at a more um, outside-in strategic management model. So given these shortcomings, do you think that, as you're saying, defense diplomacy are being delivered inefficiently that's one level of it but also interestingly when we look at the mismatch in terms in the policy incoherence you'd mentioned earlier that um so south africa uh, talks much about about promoting the african agenda yet we have 
as you were saying, 44 defense attaches um, sent to um, sent globally in terms of, of the total is, is, I think, 44. And I think the ones sent to African countries are about um, 13 in SADC and 10 in the rest in the rest of Africa. And then the rest is global. And do you think that this is commensurate with South Africa's um, purported middle power rule, um, its very lofty ambitions in the promotion of peace and security, this whole idea of it being a peace and security champion on the, at least on paper, on the, in the African sphere. And do you think that, as you were saying, also there's a gap that we need to fill with the lack of a national security strategy um, document? Yeah. So first of all, absolutely. I mean, we're already below the level of capacity compared to our ambition. So we um, operate as though we are what we have a level of power that we don't have. Effectively, that's how far I think things have gone in terms of the defense force and its funding. Uh, Another factor, of course, is we're losing the equipment that can be used to project the kind of soft power we need. So. Um, I mean, for example, one of the key ways that you do, do soft power through military forces is disaster response and peacekeeping. Uh, and those require predominantly, in terms of at least uh, aerial assets, transport aircraft, patrol aircraft, and helicopters. Uh, and right now, all three of those are areas of significant shrinking in the, in the defense force. Uh, I mean, the Air Force is having to uh, prematurely retire uh, RX helicopters because it just simply can't afford the funds to put them through major services. So from a fleet of, say, 44 uh, or 45 RX helicopters, it's down to fewer than 20 and getting smaller every day, which then impacts the ability to, for example, to send um, these to areas like the DRC as part of the, the, the mission there, or Mozambique. Uh, another factor, for example, uh, when it comes to disaster response and, and all the rest is, is transport aircraft. And there, South Africa relies heavily on its fleet of C-130 uh, transports. But, I mean, they're all 50 years old now and uh, increasingly becoming hard to maintain because of the availability and cost of spare parts. So even though there's ostensibly a fleet of, of, of eight now, uh, realistically only five of those um, are, are really you know, um, operational. And of those, at any given time, um, really one is available at most three on a, on, a, on a good day. So this this really affects our ability to be able to respond to emergencies, to be able to assist in, in disasters, and to be able to, to play the role uh, which we claim to have of, of being a, 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 you know, the, a middle power and being one of the, the, you know, the regional powers on, on the continent. So to, to, I, mean, I think it's a really important point there that, that to a large extent, we already are below our ambition levels. Um, secondly, as you mentioned, the defense uh, attaches, there's far too few of them in Africa, um, if, especially given our role. And also, I think, not only is that a problem, but the role and duties of our attaches is not, I think, fully uh, fleshed out or thought through or, 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 or properly approached. Uh, for example, um, if you go to various defense events, you will often see certain countries' defense attaches are always there. They're always present, always learning, uh, always making the, you know uh, building those, those, those relationships and, and making sure that they're 
they're getting involved in, in anything involving, um, you know, anything that is defense adjacent even. So uh, university events, uh, NGO events, and, and all the rest. Uh, I see, and, and that really comes from the top. I mean, for example, the, the Nigerian government has given us defense attaches uh, the charge to do that. Uh, they're required to do it. There's much less of a, a, a level of direction from, from uh, the DOD and DOCO to our defense attaches in South Africa, telling them to be involved in, in that level of engagement as well. So not only do you have, I think, too few, uh, especially on the continent, but they're not um, being stretched far enough in terms of what types of connections they're making. They're focused still far too much on, on purely military-to-military -military engagements, uh, so on really meeting with the counterparts um, and, and speaking to you know, the, the purely military hierarchy and not seeing their role really, again, as, as, as uh, types of diplomats where they are uh, involved in a much broader range of, uh, array of activities. Uh, then following from that, of course, we then have our, our national security strategy, which is absolutely a problem for us because we still have no coherent idea, I think, of what it means uh, to have a defense force even. You know, what is the purpose of the SAMBF? What is the purpose of our in, in intelligence agencies? What is the, what is the security um, role of DERCO? Uh, you know, we have some idea of it, so it's, it isn't like, like there's nothing to it. I mean, we have Doka's early warning system approach. We have a few ideas around this, a few policies. But to what extent, you know, are they a coherent whole? And to what extent are they updated on a regular basis? Which I think is a very key message, because we aren't in a static environment. You know, the, the, the continent's um, uh, political alignments have shifted quite substantially in the last 15, 20 years. On top of that, you know, globally we're seeing a, a massive shift in in uh, ge geopolitics with with the rise of, of China, for example, as, as a major player. Um, new alignments between China and Russia. Uh, from our point of view as well, the entire BRICS uh, approach and, and how that applies to our security strategy. Uh, India's uh, newfound strength in, in, in the Indian Ocean, which means that, that it's it's looking at, at uh, you know uh, building military ports uh, on on Africa's east. Africa's East Coast as part of its own power production uh, capabilities. So to what extent are we really keeping this up to date and understanding the key question of what does it mean for us to have a security strategy and, and to be secure? Uh, and obviously, of course, this doesn't just mean purely military security. It, I mean, uh, it goes on to, to, to human security and internal security. You know, how, how do we, um, I think you're sort of one of, getting back one of the key aspects of the 1998 Defense Review, and again, the 2015 defense review was its understanding that probably for, for the foreseeable future, our primary threats are internal. And they come from our, our severe gap between the rich and poor, our, our severe socioeconomic um, uh, you know, gaps and, and, and differences and deficiencies. And those should really, again, always be the, the main area of, of, of focus and attention. But at the same time, there's always a trade-off of some sort. So, as you mentioned, the defense budget is now down to 1% or, or less, even now, I believe. Um, is that sustainable? You know, can we, is, that is that enough to meet what we need in terms of security externally? Is that enough to have aircraft that, or, and, and, and ships that can patrol and, and keep secure our uh, EEZ? Is that enough to, to secure our borders? Um, you know, these are 
open questions that, that, that nothing at the moment has an, has an, an, an answer to. And so, yeah, absolutely. We need to have a, a, a core document updated regularly from which every other department can then draw while creating its own policies. Talking about the, the shrinking defense budget and an embattled um, South African National Defense Force, pardon the pun, um, I just think also for me, the question in, my, in the back of my mind is, let's look at the missed opportunities that we are having um, in, in, the, in the South African and in the, in the broader regional context. So like you were saying, in, in, in light of the shrinking budget, um, in light of diminished capacity and capability, and in light of the out-of-touch strategic management model of the, the DOD, then we have, um, so there's two, two problematic elements for me. Number one, we have um, 2020, the pandemic happening, uh, and the sense that I got, and here you you can you uh, feel free to correct me. The sense I got is that a lot of the joint exercises had to be put on pause, um, understandably because of the pandemic. But do they? Does it seem that we are we are yet we are on course to resume the more the more um, critical joint exercises? So here I'm thinking of something like Atlasu or Ipsama. Are those are those on course to being reinitiated? And secondly. Let's turn our heads to the the emergent threat that's happening, the regional threat in the sense of counterinsurgency in northern Mozambique. So we see the establishment of the um, SADC mission in Mozambique, and we see the and, and here I'm um, I'm presuming South Africa and Botswana have the lead role in the SADC mission. But interestingly, another actor comes into play, which is Rwanda. Um, obviously under the the auspices of a bilateral arrangement with the Mozambican government. Do, am I correct in stating that given, I think one would argue that the Rwandan army is very good at PR. So we've seen just the kind of, and here I've been following on, on social media, the kind of very good PR they have and, the, and, and they're very good at communicating the, their wins and, 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 and losses and, and the progress of operations. Um, but do you get a sense that in 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 that context, the context of the of the Cabo Delgado insurgency, that Rwanda, for lack of a better term, stole the shine from from South Africa? I would be keen on hearing your comments on that. Yeah, sure. So, um, I, I think starting out with with, with the question around, um, sorry, actually, can I start? What was your, what was your first question again? I kind of got distracted by the yeah, one. Yeah, um, so just to refresh you, the first question was about the joint exercises having been disrupted uh, yes, yes, by the yes, pandemic. Yes. And then we can talk about some. In- okay. Cool. Thanks. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, okay, yes. Uh, so as far as I can tell, no, there's no plan right now to resume exercises like uh, Ibsamal or Atlasir. Uh, in fact, the SANDF has yet to really resume its own exercises at, at large scale. Uh, and I'd go further than that and say the long-term trend is probably towards those being cancelled uh, because as it is, the SANDS internal exercises have grown smaller and smaller every year and quite a few of them have actually diminished from being full exercises in the field to merely being command post exercises where all that's being tested is, is really the theoretical knowledge of, of, of certain key um, commanders. So this has been a, a multi-year trend already where uh, exercises have been downscaled to the point of, uh, you know, almost being having no value. 
Um, and this is, again, a factor in terms of our capacity and damage capacity. And not only that, but also awareness, because without large-scale exercises, you don't actually know what's not working. You don't know where your weaknesses are. You don't know which areas need to be fixed. And so you tend to only find out those things when you do go to war or have a disaster or something similar, and it gets completely shown up and exposed. Another factor, of course, is that the Defense Force is being called upon to do more and more internally. So the COVID response is part of that, uh, as well as obviously the response to the internal um, security situation, the riots of, of, of earlier this year, for which the, the SNDF you know, had to deploy vast amounts of, of personnel, expend a huge amount of money, and was not fully reimbursed. Uh, and we're seeing more and more the Defense Force having to do internal tasks, but not provided with the funding to do so. Which, of course, because if you look at the defense budget, there are certain things that can't be cut. So, for example, payments to soldiers and other personnel costs. So what ends up being cut are things considered discretionary. So exercises, uh, you know, operational training, and, and all those other things where uh, you may not see the effects immediately, but will definitely pay the price later on. Uh, and this is, I mean, this is one of my great concerns at the moment, that we are slowly walking into a, a, a potential disaster where the capacity is dropping faster than we realize, and we won't know how bad it is until we're actually called upon to use it. Uh, and uh, that might be, you know, in a year from now, it might be two years from now, it might be five years from now. But it's going to happen at some point. Looking at Mozambique, uh, you know, absolutely. Uh, in fact, you mentioned of Rwandans, uh, the, or the Rwandan Defense Forces PR, brings me to another angle of uh, argued defense diplomacy, which is the, the role of PR and outreach to the public and the media of a defense force. Uh, the SANDF remains rooted in exceptionally archaic and antiquated ideas around PR, around public outreach, around transparency. And this is, in my view, one of its greatest flaws and one of the reasons why there is such a prevailing negative view for most applicants towards that defense force. And subtle appetite, in my view, for also greater spending on the Defence Force. Because it is very difficult to understand uh, you know, what the Defence Force does, what its purpose is, what value it has, when it's so bad at telling us what it does and, and what it's doing. So if you compare, for example, so the Rwandan forces in Mozambique, um, they have had journalists embedded with them. who have the freedom to be able to report on events as they happen, uh, obviously with some provision given to operational security. And, um, you know, compared to, to the approach given by the, the joint mission, uh, SAMM, where all they do is they, they give out a, a, a post-hoc uh, post press release with a few photos and a canned response, and that's it. They expect to have the same level of attention and, and of, of awareness. It really isn't how it works. It's just a completely um, ineffective approach, and it's extraordinarily frustrating because of the printers being lost in terms of a great understanding uh, of not only their role, but a great understanding of the public of why we need to have a defense force and why we need to be funding at a certain level, what its role is. Um, when it comes to stealing the march and, and stealing some, some of the shine, I think, to be fair, the Rwandans do deserve uh, a fair bit of kudos and credits for going in and really operating quite quickly. You know, they deployed fast, they moved fast, it was risky. Uh, that job, I mean, had had uh, the insurgents groups put up more of a fight, you know, as we now know, in most places they they they, they faded away into the jungle or across the border. 
But had they put up more of a fight or been better equipped in certain areas, there's no doubt that the Romans would have taken on higher losses. But as it was, they, they made a, a, a gamble. It worked out for them. And they've ended up, you know, really, I think, achieving some, some pretty impressive goals in the, in the early time well, uh, that, 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 that they've been there. That being said, of course, it's not going to last. The nature of any insurgency is uh, it tends to grow, but hold some territory. Anytime you then bring in forces that are superior to it, uh, it'll shrink back quite fast. But then you enter into the really difficult phase of counterinsurgency, which is when it's now split up, operating from jungles mostly, or, or rural areas, and exceptionally hard to to combat and control because they don't hold territory in the, the ordinarily understood way. I mean, if, if, if an insurgency group holds a city, fine, you can just lock them out. But if what they're doing is making constant raids onto a city uh, from externally, it's so much harder to, to, to combat that and deal with that. And the terrain around um, northern Mozambique especially is, is very difficult terrain to operate in, exceptionally thick jungle. And of course, um, you know, other uh, borders of, of, of Tanzania are quite nearby as well. So I think it's going to be a very difficult thing to deal with. And part of what allowing Rwanda to get in there first has done is it has left Sadiq with the hardest part, really, of the insurgency. And the one that's going to result in the worst press. Uh, because um, it's not as easy to say, okay, well, I've now cleared out the city. There's no easy headlines like, like that. You know, the only, all you can report as, as, as a success is slightly less violence in a month or, uh, you know, fewer attacks or a certain number of, of insurgents killed, which then leads to the, the temptation to do body counting, like was done in Vietnam, which obviously doesn't work. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that was, by the way, part of the intention. I think that's why the government of Mozambique delayed uh, the approval of the mission for SADC. Uh, why the Rwandans went in with such haste, even though it was risky. The idea was certainly, I think, to clear out a corridor uh, around the not well, the total facilities and, and, and that area, and effectively prevent someone from operating in that specific area. So someone's been, been, been granted certain areas to operate in, they're a little bit further out, they're in the more, di- more difficult terrain. And so this is an area, again, where the ability to use effective PR and to give a proper understanding to the public and, and the media and, and the stakeholders of what you're doing and why you're doing it and why things are going the way they are is totally critical. And it's where so far, Southern, driven by the secretive natures of both the Botswana and, and, and South African defense uh, uh, forces, has failed completely. And, and it's interesting, um, very interesting points you raise there, Darren. And it, it also occurs to me that this is where also, aside from PR, this is where also you see the, the importance of a whole of government approach when it comes to countering insurgents like this. Because yes, you can rely on kinetic um, military operations, but ultimately it's a hearts and minds questions. Um, so hence the lessons that we've learned from traditional coin operations from your Iraq, your your Afghanistan. And it even brings me to the question of, do you think that then there's a role for defense diplomacy? And here I'm speaking in the African context, where the there's an exchange of information and a, a, a lesson learning experience from the other side of Africa, where we see um, the Sahel, where there's, there's the jihadist groups and there's the need for this um, 
the failings to understand the failings and the shortcomings of of undertaking um counterinsurgency operations on one hand and and what has worked and what has failed so far and being able to understand what not to do for instance as we're seeing happening now in in mm. southern africa so is that is is that happening in terms of of african militaries or is there just a, a reliance on on um your external or your western partners to 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 take up that training and that that um lesson learning experience um and an attached question to that a related question is do you think that there's in the african um sense do you think that there's a role of um defense diplomacy to enhance um conflict prevention or conflict resolution so maybe um yeah. just those two questions so not nearly enough so you know looking back against mozambique one of the key things that, that that many of us have often raised is there is no military solution to this problem uh yes involving the military so both the one and the defense force the mozambique military and simon will give some success in at least bringing about some level of security and pushing back the insurgency a little bit and creating the space for, for additional interventions. But ultimately, the roots of this conflict are socioeconomic uh, and you know, they, they, they link to things like, like the, the, um, the area itself being uh, underdeveloped, uh, being treated quite poorly by, by government centrally and so many other issues. And the only thing a military intervention can do for you there is to buy you time. And... If, if there is not a, a con- concurrent follow-up from the Bosnian government, um, from regional governments, and from uh, both continental and regional uh, you know, institutions, to really change the, the socio-economic layout and, and fortunes of that area, and to bring about traditional levels of diplomacy as well, then this is all going to fail. And we're going to end up in, you know, with one of these endless wars that, that just never ends. Um, and... Uh, uh, Really, I think you're looking at you know, the same consideration as, as, as Afghanistan, where um, it's, there's, there's just no progress after a while. So you, you enter in a stalemate where people are never fully secure. It's never safe enough for militaries to, to leave. And um, it, it effectively becomes a, a very horrible uh, situation. So that's definitely true for Mozambique. It's definitely true elsewhere. And again, I think you're, you're quite correct in saying that it's generally being left to foreign partners as opposed to being something which continental militaries themselves focus on and continental you know, uh, foreign policy uh, departments. So um, again, looking to our approach as, as Africa, we don't tend to involve them, uh, the military and, and, and DERCO at that level. We don't tend to look at capacity building um, uh, on both those tiers in a coordinated fashion. We don't tend to really um, look for lessons learned either. You know, there's far too few, well, uh, it's far too little um, of a return in terms of what, what our attached diplomats are, are seeing elsewhere in the government and what they're bringing back in turn. You know, um, I mean, there's currently, in my view, a, a, a severe dearth of, of, of um, intellectual feedback uh, from the SANDF's involvement elsewhere and its missions elsewhere back into the force and uh, creating a change. So you often have a case where it's doing the same thing the same way over and over again and expecting you know, different results. So that's really an issue, I think, where 
I agree. It's it's not covered properly. It's not handled at the right level. It's not given the importance it deserves. And I think this is because there's not enough um, appreciation at, at the highest levels of government for the value that it can bring and, and the you know, extremely effective transformations that, 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 that this kind of coordinated approach can bring about. Yes, and and um, the, the related question on the, on the question of conflict prevention and co- or conflict resolution. Oh, yes. Sorry. Yes. So absolutely. Um, one of the key values of defense diplomacy, of course, is to build trust. And building trust and, 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 aware, and, and knowledge of, of, of the country's actions is uh, one of, again, you know, a key factor to preventing conflict. Because uh, conflict often grows out of, out of either a mistrust or a competition for, for scarce resources in a way that, that, that can't, be, can't be resolved through other means. Um, so diplomacy in that sense, and defense diplomacy especially, is a way to enhance the links between countries at all levels. So not only from the point of view of the diplomats, but also within you know, the militaries themselves. And again, not only at the highest levels, so not only your chiefs of services, but all the way down to um, you know, mid-level officers, all the way down to, to individual troops, which also then I think reduces the, the possibility of mistakes happening and uh, you know, out in the fields and, and where armed forces might, might come into, come into uh, frequent contact and, and avoids you know, the possibility of, of misunderstandings and, and um, those kinds of things causing brief flare-ups. So that's one area in which it, it can help. Another area it can help, of course, is to, uh, by creating that, 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 that opportunity for dialogue, it increases the, possi- the, 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 the number of, or well, the probability of finding solutions that are win-win or at least acceptable to both sides. So, you know, one of the, I think, worst things you can do as, as, as two countries that are competing over a, a resource or, or, or some other thing is to just not, not communicate and to not have a good insight into the way that the other country thinks, into what, what its, its, its key demands and needs are, uh, and, and into, you know, what considers to be important. And so in the absence of that kind of interaction and information, the alternative is to really start um, almost assuming and imputing motives and, and, and objectives, which of course then leads to further opportunities for misunderstanding and mistakes and accidents and uh, conflict. So in my view, yes, absolutely. That is the um, exceptionally important role that I can play. And it's not nearly done often enough in, in, in that the African context. And in, in wrapping up this conversation, defense industry um, as a key part of defense diplomacy, and um, we all know about the terminal decline of Denel, um, the fact that it's making losses, it's 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 uh, been been denied government bailouts now. Um, then there's also been cases of brain drain of highly skilled engineers. So do you think that it's now dead in the water essentially? Um, and how this is going to affect South Africa in terms of it missing out um, on on key um, markets, um, um, markets, but also the fact that it's being pushed out by um, external competitors. So maybe a final comment on, on on the state of the South African defense industry. Yeah, so uh, Danel has already gone beyond the point of being able to rescue many of the capabilities. So whatever happens now, even if the mail is saved to some extent by an injection of funds, 
it won't be able to return to what it was five years ago, uh, especially when it comes to certain high, uh, areas of, of, of high-tech capabilities like missiles and UAVs. So that's one factor already. And again, um, this applies in terms of not only the markets, but also the level of outreach and cooperation and coordination. Uh, so as an example, South Africa, well, Demel had a contract to sell um, vehicles to, to, to Chad. The contract was procured uh, at a time when Demel was in, 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 uh, under state capture. It was a contract that was corrupt, uh, actually loss-making, and Demel then couldn't deliver, which of course then created a, a foreign policy issue between South Africa and Chad and the entire region. Because to what extent can you then trust Africa to follow up on its, you know, on its uh, uh, promises and, and, and all the rest if it can't even deliver purchased equipment? So that's, I think, the first part of it, that uh, we become an unreliable partner on one... If, if, you, if, you, if you become an unreliable partner on one angle, it then feeds through to every other promise you make as a country. Um, but yes, Danelle, I think, is largely dead already. In fact, longer term, I think the majority of the African defense industry is probably going to disappear, um, which, of course, then has an impact not only on our ability to uh, export for foreign, you know, foreign country revenue, sorry, for, uh, to, for, yeah, to export for, for to, to, to countries for revenue, but also our ability to be able to interact with countries elsewhere and help build up their own industries. So help establish trust and, and build up those, those economic links by creating opportunities for joint developments and joint projects and, 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 and license building and, and, and that kind of thing. So we really are losing one of the tools in our arsenal, uh, I think quite most likely permanently, uh, regarding Danelle's collapse and, of course, the, the general decline uh, of the local defense industry. Um, and I think on that very profound note, um, we'll wrap up this conversation. I just want to say a big thank you to um, you, Darren, for um, coming on board in this conversation. It's been very enlightening on so many levels. And we hope that maybe in future, given the feedback that we get, we'll also have you for a more, um, um, really get you into the weeds um, in talking about maybe another aspect of defense affairs. So thank you, Darren. Thank you so much, Faith. It was a, a, a fascinating talk. Yeah, I also want to thank our audience for tuning in. And we ask that you continue in making this uh, podcast a success by sharing and leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you. Until next time.